Amen. <clears throat> Open your Bibles this morning to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 5. We're going to go back to the Old Testament this morning and uh, just excited for what God has for us. Um, what a blessed time of worship it's been. And to celebrate Christ is an amazing gift, is it not? And uh, we are so blessed to be able to gather as the body of Christ, as the redeemed, to cry out to him, and to rejoice in him. Uh, but I want to encourage you to, this morning that uh, worship doesn't stop when the praise band stops, right? Uh, when we gather around his word, it's a time to continue in worship. So I pray that that same excitement, that same energy that you uh, were able to display through the worship this morning and through the fellowship of, of shaking hands with God's people and encouraging them. Um, I know that we don't always think about fellowship as worship, but uh, I try to make sure I mention this. When we gather together as the body of Christ in that greet time, um, somebody asked me one time, why do we do a greet time? That seems, you know, awful traditional. And uh, I said, yep, and it's awesome. And so, um, but why do we do that? Why is that worship? Because when you gather with God's people and you get to see someone that's going through something and you can tell them, hey, how are you doing with that? And it's not that we got three hours to sit and kind of do a counseling session. You're just asking them, how, how are you doing with that? I've been praying for you. How's that going? Um, just to see someone smiling I can lift you up. Amen. Um, it was so, it's so good to see uh, Bob Raymond here this week. Uh, just had a, a surgery this week and, and feeling good. And it was great to see him and to say, hey, man, I'm glad you're up and about. That's awesome. And, and so it's, it's all of that is worship this morning. But I pray that we would take that same energy and excitement into uh, God's word this morning. Um, again, uh, Exodus chapter 5, and I do hope you have your Bible with you. Uh, maybe on a device or in paper form. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we'd love to get you the Word of God. And so go to the Welcome Center right after service today. Uh, we'd give you a, a copy of God's Word. Or if you have a device you're using this morning, you can download our church app. Uh, go to your app store, North Goodland BC, in your app store. And there's an app. Uh, in the app, there's a Bible feature there you can use as well. And so I encourage you to get God's Word and to be able to hear and read God's Word for yourself. Uh, this morning, uh, I really do pray uh, that this message will be an encouragement to you, uh, that it will be an encouragement to uh, all of us as we go through seasons of life. And I, I pray that you will understand greater what I mean when I say this, but um, I, I want us to really look at this idea that kind of follow up from last week. Uh, last week we shared uh, the question, and we asked the question, who's steering your life? We asked that question last week. Who's really ultimately in control of your life? Uh, are you trying to control your life? Are you trying to make sure everything balances out and you're, you're ultimately one that says, I've got to be in control all the time? Or as you as a follower of Christ, have you said, I'm going to relinquish control to my Savior and give God complete control of my life and give him the ability to steer and guide and direct my life wherever he chooses because ultimately I trust him more than I trust myself? Uh, that should be a pretty easy decision, shouldn't it? Uh, trusting God should be pretty easy when we realize how messed up we can be, right? Uh, many people have told me, man, I don't even trust myself, let alone trust other people. Here's an example. Have you ever said, I never thought I would ever do that? If you've ever said that, then you can say with great confidence, I don't really trust myself. I always said I would never, but I did. Because we're not really that trustworthy, are we? We think, oh, other people aren't trustworthy. You aren't trustworthy. I'm not in myself. I should not be in control of my life. <laughs> I mean, listen, I say it all the time. I'm so thankful I'm not God. You should be very thankful that I'm not God. 
okay? This is a bad day, okay? We're not that trustworthy. So it should make pretty, or it should be pretty clear, make common sense that we would just give God control. Ultimately, that's really what we're called to do, is it not? In the word of God, we're called as the followers of Christ to relinquish control, to trust Jesus Christ as our Savior, not only for eternity, but also in this life, and say, I'm giving you control. We looked at a couple examples last week. We looked at Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, and we talked about that Abraham was called to leave family, to leave home, to leave all that was familiar, and by doing so was leaving the protection of the tribe, the ability for his family to care for his rights, the provision of family. And when he left home, and I love what God said, leave all that familiar stuff and go to a land that I will show you. He doesn't tell him, this is where I'm sending you. He says, as you're in the going, I'll show you. So Abraham gets up and surrenders all that and leaves and trusts in God and gives control over, trusting God to provide his rights and his protection and his provision. We also looked at the example of Noah in Genesis, well, 6 till 9. But when it talks about Noah's ark, and we pointed out that when God has given Noah the plans to build the ark, it's a beautiful blueprint. We know how wide, how tall, that there's going to be a window, there's a door on the side. We know all this detail. But the two things that we would expect to be there that are just missing is a sail and a rudder. So there's no sail and there's no rudder. That means that Noah had no control over the ark. He, it was an example, an illustration of God or trusting in God with everything. Noah said, I'll float along for all this time, just trusting. Every day he got up, God, I'm trusting you to guide us again. God, I'm trusting you. Now, I say it's an illustration. I do truly believe that actually happened, by the way. I really do believe in a literal flood account. When I say an illustration, I mean, I think we can see through that demonstration, that example, that we too should give control of our rudder, if you will, our sail over to him and say we're willing to control. But when we asked this question last week, we kind of pointed out that there was three basic reasons why we won't surrender control, why we won't give control over to God, or we give control over to God, but then we take it back in a moment's notice. And those three basic reasons, and there's more maybe for you, but for me, there was three things that came to mind, fear, pride, and disappointment. We said that fear is, I don't know what God's going to call me to do. I'm fearful God's going to do this and this and this. So I, like Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, later on, he took his life, the control of his life, back in his own hands. Pride is, I know better than God. Again, now we're getting a little bit off base, aren't we? God, I know you're the sovereign creator that sustains all of the universe together and has breathed everything into existence and formed man of the dust of the ground, but I think I know better how to handle my career. The silliness of this. God, I know that you raised people from the dead. You can sustain all of this and, and just hold it all together. I know that your word says that all things were created by you and for you and through you. They stay together, but I think I can handle my family. I don't think I really need your help in my checkbook. I don't think I really need your help in this area of my life. We're prideful. We take control because we think we know better. But then that last one, disappointment, what is that talking about? We said that it was basically I gave control over to God, but things didn't work out like I thought they would, so I took control back. I was left in disappointed, a disappointed state. I was disappointed in God, so I took control back because I thought I could make it better. And what I want to do this morning is I want to spend our time together following up on that point. This idea of disappointment in our lives. 
How do we withstand the waves of disappointment that come against us? How do we stand against these seasons of disappointment that we all face? I want to let you know, by his grace, you can withstand the waves of disappointment that you experience. But there's a truth we have to admit. You will experience disappointment in this life. You will, in varying degrees. Some things come and some things go, and you had your hope on this and your hope on that. But we all experience disappointment. So how can we withstand the waves of disappointment? I want to go to Exodus chapter 5 and look at a really cool uh, passage. We're going to read a lot of scripture this morning. And so if we don't get through the whole message this morning, that's totally fine. We'll just pick it up next week. But I want to, I want to read this whole kind of back and forth here between Moses and Pharaoh and then also between Pharaoh and the people of God and, and just this whole story going on here. Quick backstory, real quick, if you're not familiar um, Moses is on the scene. Uh, and who is Moses? What's Moses supposed to do? What's Moses going to do for the children of God? He's going to lead them what? Out of slavery, right? He's the great deliverer. Uh, the burning bush experience has already happened. Okay, all of that's already taken place. God has already equipped Moses with what he needs. He's had a couple encounters with God. He's given him Aaron as a, as a mouthpiece to speak for Moses. God's given Moses everything he needs. And he says, I want you to now go to Pharaoh. Now, this sounds like not a big deal to us, right? Because we've kind of lowered the offices in our country, haven't we? We don't really elevate people and honor the offices in our land. I mean, the office of president used to be something that was respected and honored, and, and it's just now it's more of a laughing stock, right? It's just a joke. We don't really honor the president. No matter what political party you are or what they are, it doesn't really matter. Uh, just in society today, uh, the office of president isn't one that's highly esteemed, Right? Um, even, uh, I was listening to a sermon this week and they were talking about, uh, the office of pastor in our country, uh, is not one that's highly esteemed, unfortunately, because of the errors of pastors and those that have fallen and also the way our society goes. And so when you hear this, you think, okay, what's the big deal? It's just a guy. Uh, Pharaoh was the most powerful man in the known world. He could have taken Moses's life in an instant. And Moses is not going in asking for a small request. He's saying, hey, I need you to let that whole working force, that whole party of people that you have that are building things for you and doing it for basically free, would you let them go? Because I think that would be nice. I mean, if you could do me that favor, that would be awesome. This is not a small request. And so here we set up and we see Moses going into Pharaoh. Verse 1, and I do, again, I hope you have your Bible with you. We're going to read quite a few verses this morning. It says here, and afterward Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, let my people go. Don't sing the song, okay? Don't do it, okay? That they may hold a feast unto me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I know not the Lord, neither will I let Israel go. And they said, The God of the Hebrews hath met with us. Let us go, we pray thee, three days' journey into the desert and sacrifice unto the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. And the king of Egypt said unto them, Wherefore do ye, Moses and Aaron, let the people from their works get you unto your burdens? Burdens is just a fancy word of saying the job, the, the weight of their slavery. Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land now are many, and you make them rest from their burdens. And Pharaoh commanded the same day the taskmasters of the people and their officers, saying, You shall no more give the people straw to make brick as heretofore. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. And the tale of the bricks which they did make 
heretofore you shall lay upon them. You shall not diminish aught thereof, for they be idle. Therefore they cry, saying, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Basically what that's saying is, we're going to take the straw. We were giving them straw to make brick with. We were, you know, harvesting the straw, giving it to them. Now the Hebrews have to go get the straw and make the bricks. And the amount of bricks, the, the quota, if you will, does not change. So think about this for a second. You have X number of bricks to make in a day. You got to do that. And you're doing that to some degree when they give you the straw. Now you have to take time in your day to go get the straw and still make the same number of bricks. Is that going to be difficult or easy? Say difficult. It's going to be very difficult. You see what Pharaoh's doing here? He's kind of making a mockery of this. You come to me saying you want the people of God to go out in the wilderness to take a time of feast and rest? So they must be pretty bored. They must be idle. So I'm going to give them more to do. This is like when a kid comes to a parent three weeks into summer vacation and says, I'm bored. And the parent says, great, go downstairs, clean the basement. You're bored. You must need something to do. I learned pretty on. I never told my parents I was bored. Okay. Goes on to say this here. Uh, let's see here. I believe we're in verse 9. Let their more work be laid upon the men, and they may labor therein, and let them not regard vain words. And the taskmasters of the people went out, and their officers, and they spake to the people, saying, Thus say Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go ye, get, your, get you straw where you can find it. Yet not aught for your work shall be diminished. So the people were scattered abroad throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble instead of straw. And the taskmasters hastened them, saying, Fulfill your works, your daily tasks, as when they, there was straw. And the officers of the children of Israel, which Pharaoh's taskmasters set over them, were beaten, demanded, Wherefore have you not fulfilled your task in making brick both yesterday and today and heretofore? See, obviously they're not able to do this. They're coming up short. Then the officers of the children of Israel came and cried unto Pharaoh. See, these were Hebrews that were put in charge of other Hebrews. So when the Hebrews weren't doing their job, these guys were beaten. It says, wherefore dealest thou thus with thy servants? Now they're getting mad because they're like, why are you taking it out on us? They're not doing their job. There is no straw given unto thy servants. And they say to us, make brick. And behold, thy servants are beaten. But the fault is in thine own people. But he said, you are idle. You are idle. Therefore you say, let us go and do sacrifice to the Lord. Go therefore now and work, for there shall no straw be given to you, you shall, or, and yet shall ye deliver the ta tale of bricks. And the office of the children of Israel did see that they were in evil case. After it was said, you shall not minish aught from your bricks of your daily task. And they met Moses and Aaron who stood in the way as they came forth from Pharaoh. And they said unto them, The Lord look upon you and judge you, because you have made our Savior to be abhorred in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of thy servants, to put a sword in their hand to slay us. Get this. Chapter 5 opens up. Moses and Aaron are heroes. By chapter 21, they're like, Why'd you even come? It's your fault. You're the one that's causing all this. Now, these are just Hebrews. They're, they're not as mature as Moses, right? They're not as educated as Moses. They're not as godly as Moses. Look at verse 22. And Moses returned to the Lord and said, Lord, wherefore hast thou so evil entreated this people? Why is it that thou hast sent me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in thy name, he hath done evil to his people. Neither hast thou delivered thy people at all. So apparently Moses isn't quite as mature as we thought. Apparently Moses isn't that much farther along than the people that he's trying to set free. 
To me, this is an amazing back and forth between Moses and Pharaoh and the people of God and the servants of Pharaoh. And we see from the beginning of the chapter to the end how quickly our emotions and expectations can change. Look at Exodus 4, verse 31. Exodus 4, verse 31. And the people believed. If you read it before this, Aaron and Moses go to the elders of Israel and they tell them all the things that God has said. Man, look at what God has told us. Look at the signs that we can do. Watch this. Stick, snake. It's awesome. It's crazy. It's so cool. Okay, stick, snake. Snake, stick. Okay, it's great. All these signs. Look at what God is doing. God is going to deliver us. And look at all the people rejoiced. Verse 31 again. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel and that he had looked upon their affliction, they, uh, then they bowed their heads and worshipped. And there's hope. There's excitement, anticipation. God has heard our affliction. He knows what we're going through. And he visited us. He came to us. Remember, we said this before. All through Genesis, we see God lessening his interactions with his people. From walking in the garden in the physical to Joseph at the end of Genesis through a dream. It's just God has been slowly, because of sin and because of the division, because of the hard-heartedness, God is less and less interacting through this. And so now we get to this point, and when they hear that God has visited them by coming to Moses, they are excited. There is hope. There is joy. They worshiped God. But why were they worshiping God? Because they believed God would set them free. They were so excited to be set free and have their burdens lifted. They had an expectation of what was going to happen next. As God now sends Moses to Pharaoh, they believe, man, God's going to go in there through Moses. Moses is going to talk to Pharaoh. Pharaoh's going to be like, yes, let the people go. We're all going to go free. It's going to be great. That's not what happens. As we see in our own lives, it doesn't always go like we thought it would go. It doesn't always play out like we thought it would. And when things start going a little sideways and we're thinking, no, 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 no. But God, you said, you said you would set us free. And if you're going to set us free, why is this happening? And as our circumstances change, our expectations aren't met. And with expectations that aren't met, what comes next? Disappointment and discouragement and fear and distrust. Ultimately, we see that disappointment is always rooted in hope. It's only when we really hope in something that we can truly be disappointed in something. I love a quote from Matt Chandler that speaks to the frustration we feel as human beings when we, by faith, attempt to live under God's control. He said this, God has a plan and it is good. Okay, we got to believe that. So if we're taking notes, you got to write that down. God has a plan and it is good. And then like underline, circle, point arrows to good. Just make good the point of it. God has a plan and it is good. We have to believe that. But, I'm so glad he continued this thought. But it will always play out different than we thought it would. God has a plan and it is good. But it will always play out different than we thought it would. Just out of curiosity, you don't have to tell a story or testify. I just want to, I'm just curious with a raised hand. How many of you would say that you thought you knew what God had for you? You started walking down that road, and as you were going down the road, God changed 
what was going on. God redirected some things. He did something different than you thought he would. Okay? Yeah. How many of you, maybe now at this point in your life, and this isn't for all of us because we're at different phases and different seasons, but is there anyone here that would say, in the moment he was changing it, you were like, God, what are you doing? God, I don't get this. God, I don't like this. God, I'm not happy with this. But now you look back and say, God, thank you that I didn't understand, but thank you that your plan is good. Anyone willing to testify to that? And we have all been there. But see, when you read Exodus 5, it's really hard for God's people to be there. Because they're looking at the situation and saying, man, you went to Pharaoh and things got worse. Look at how bad things got. Since disappointment happens to all of us, uh, before we get to the idea of how to withstand the waves of disappointment, I want to ask the question, what can exasperate disappointment? So before we understand how to withstand disappointment, we have to ask the question, but what makes disappointment worse in my life? All of us experience disappointment. But is there anything that I do, any way that I handle this, that actually will make it worse? That will actually exasperate and build up disappointment in our lives? And so I want to look at this example in Exodus 5 and see what can we glean from this interaction and see how we in our own lives can exasperate disappointments. And again, remember, before we judge the people of God, before we judge Moses, let's just remind ourselves we're just like these guys. By the way, if, if, if you were the Hebrew children and you were going through this and this was all taking place, guess what you would say to Moses and Aaron? Why'd you guys even come? It's, not a, it's just getting worse. Thanks, by the way. You ever tell someone that? Hey, I just want you to know thanks because they did something that made a situation worse. He says, thanks, Moses. We're just like this. And so what can exasperate disappointment? The first thing we see is half-hearted obedience. Half-hearted obedience. I want you to notice verse 1 again. Exodus 5 and verse 1. And afterward, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Stop. Are they doing what they're supposed to be doing? Yes. What did God tell Moses? Go to Pharaoh. So the minute Moses walks into the palace, he is being obedient, correct? You guys can interact. It's totally fine. He's walking into the palace. He's doing what God said to do. But isn't this like us and just like Abraham? When Abraham left home and surrendered all, and God, I'm being the faithful servant. I'm going out. And he gets out in the wilderness. He gets out, and there's a famine in the land. Remember this? Then he goes to Egypt for food because they had food. He wasn't distrusting God in any of these steps. He's doing exactly what he's called to do. He's giving God control. He's stepping out by faith. Then he gets to Egypt, and he's fearful because his wife is, if you were here last week, you know what I'm going to say. She was hot was the word we used last week, okay? So if you, that just told me who was in church last week, praying for the rest of you. I'm just saying, okay? Check your heart, okay? Check your heart. Okay. In the King James, it says she was fair, okay? In, in my translation, it means that she was hot. And he was like, man, you're pretty hot. They're going to think you're hot. They're going to kill me so they can take you. So tell everybody you're my sister. And so when they get into Egypt, why did he do that? Because he was fearful for his protection, the minute he made her, encouraged her to lie, which I said it last week, women, wives, if you're not married, if you are married, don't marry someone you have to lie to cover up for. Let's just be real. And if you are married to someone who asks you to lie for them, you say no. <laughs> and men, how about we be men of integrity, honesty, and Christ-likeness and actually set an example for our wives and not expect them to come down to our level when we're doubting God. Just saying. 
So when you see this example play out, Abraham doubted God. And what is Moses going to do? He's obedient initially, but he's not fully obedient. And we have the same tendency. But God, I was obedient, but only partially. Notice how Moses did not say what God said to say. He was half-hearted in his obedience. Verse 1. And afterward, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go. We're all good to this point. Look what he says. That they may hold a feast unto me in the wilderness. Is that what God said? Did God say, Go tell Pharaoh to let my people go so you can have a feast for me in the wilderness? That's not what God says. Moses is half-hearted in his obedience. We justify being obedient, even though it's half-hearted, when we are not fully obedient, and then we get frustrated at God for not being faithful. God says, go do this. We go do 50% of it. God doesn't come through in our mind, and we go, God, where were you? I did what you asked me to do. Did you, though? And did you really do what God asked you to do? We think if we are just doing something, God is satisfied. The truth is God does not want half-hearted obedience. He doesn't want half-truths. Now, were the children of God going to go have a feast in the wilderness when they're set free? Yes. But is that the full truth? No. I am not looking at this as saying that a new Christian that hasn't learned or hasn't been discipled, that has limited knowledge, is being half-heartedly obedient when they're only at this phase of their Christian walk. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm saying is somebody that has full knowledge of it, full understanding of what God's calling you to do, and you willfully choose to disobey. That's what I'm talking about. See, I believe that God always holds us accountable for what we know, for what's been revealed. This is why it's so vital that we as Christians study the word of God that we might not be, what? Ashamed. Because we have to know God's word so we can do what he's called us to do. I'm not talking about a brand new Christian who gets saved and, and just hasn't been discipled, hasn't really grown yet, and therefore they're not really fully being obedient in some things. That's a separate issue. That falls on a discipler to come alongside and say, let me help you walk through the word of God so you can live as Christ would have you to live. Not that you would be like me, but be like Jesus. I'm talking about the person that's been saved for 40, 50, 60 years, 10, 20, 30 years, that has full knowledge and still willfully says, I just choose comfort over Christ. I just choose convenience over calling. That's what we're talking about. That half-hearted, God, I know you want me to do this, but I'll do this. It's not really what you want me to do, but it's something, and so you'll be satisfied. I'll give you a little handout here or there. In Exodus chapter 3, we don't have time to read it, but in Exodus 3, God told Moses he was going to deliver his people out of the hand of Pharaoh and give them their own land. Then in Exodus chapter 4, verses 22 through 23, God tells Moses what to tell Pharaoh after the signs he does. And we have to ask the question, does it match up with chapter 5, verse 1? So let's go to Exodus 4. I will read these couple verses. So it says here in verse 22 of Exodus 4, And thou shalt say unto Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. And I say unto thee, let, thy, let my son go, that he may serve me. And if thou refuse to let him go, behold, I will slay thy son, even thy firstborn. See, now, we know the rest of the story, right? We know what happens later. Is Moses eventually obedient fully? Yes. 
But that's not what we're talking about. In this moment, what exasperated the disappointment of God's people? Half-hearted obedience. Moses wasn't fully outright when he came in in that initial conversation. Half-hearted obedience can, can and will exasperate disappointment. Next one. What else will exasperate disappointment? We see the clash of the titans. This is where Moses and Pharaoh are kind of clashed together, and it creates fear. Look at verse 2. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I know not the Lord, neither will I let Israel go. Verse 9. Let uh, their more work be laid upon the men that they may labor therein and let them not regard vain words. And the taskmasters of the people went out, verse 10, and their officers, and they spake to the people saying, Thus saith Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. See, this idea of fear starts to set in. We're not, we're not seeing what we think we should see. I want you to note, though, just for note's sake, the difference between Pharaoh and God. God says, come out and rest. Pharaoh says, stay and work. We see the difference here between what God has for his people and what Pharaoh wants for the Hebrews. The people expected rest and received more work. Greater burden. This isn't how it was supposed to go. This isn't what it was supposed to look like. And let me understand, let me tell you something. It's completely normal. You've got to get this. In the church, I think it's like if we get disappointed or discouraged, we think we're being a bad Christian. <laughs> it's completely normal to be disappointed and discouraged in this life. It is completely normal when we expect rest and get more burden to be a little bit confused and misunderstand and get disappointed. There is zero wrong with being disappointed in something. Hear me on this. So many, there, this is real popular to say, well, if you, if you would just say these things and speak these things, then everything will be fine. Don't ever say you're disappointed. Don't ever say you're discouraged because you're speaking that into existence. Really, because there is psalm after psalm after psalm of God's people saying, this is not what I thought would happen. And yet by the end of the psalm are praising God, not because they ignored their disappointment and discouragement, but because they accepted that they were there, here in disappointment and then accepted God's help and grace to get out of it. And we got to be afraid. You can't be afraid to tell God what we're really feeling. Because like I said, all throughout God's word, God's people are crying out saying, God, I don't get it. So don't be afraid to admit that you're going through this. Don't be afraid to say, God, I don't want to deal with this anymore. One of the greatest examples of this to me is Elijah in the Old Testament. Elijah battles 850 prophets and, and servants to the prophet of Baal, the, the idol of Baal. And he's on this mountaintop and 850 people are crying out and hooping and hollering and cutting themselves, trying to ask for their God, Baal, this idol, to send down fire and consume this altar. And Elijah just sitting there confident in his God. He actually mocks them a little bit and he says, shout a little louder, maybe he's sleeping. I love that. Shout a little louder, he can't hear you. Maybe he's busy. And as this is all going on and everything's, these guys are hooping and hollering, and obviously they do this all day and all night, nothing happens. Elijah stands, prays one prayer, and God sends fire and consumes the altar. And not just the altar, but they dug a trench around the altar, filled it with water, soaked the wood. And if you've gone camping and tried to light wet wood, that doesn't work, okay? All of this wet wood, the altar is soaked, the trench around it is full of water. He prays one prayer, God sends fire, consumes everything. The altar licked up all the water, the Bible says. Elijah says, this is the true and living God. Worship him. 
I mean, this is a great win for Elijah. This is a great win for God. Everyone is just worshiping God. Everything is great. Until Jezebel, the queen, finds out what happened. And she sends a messenger to Elijah and says, this time tomorrow, I'm going to do to you what you did to my prophets. You see, all those prophets were put to death. It was a capital crime in this understanding of the Old Testament to commit idol worship. They were taken from God, and so it was a capital punishment under the law. And so they were all put to death. And Jezebel says, okay, Elijah, you think you're bad. You think you're tough. I'm going to take your life like you took theirs. Now, again, you're thinking about this logically. 850 people, one man, and he stood victorious. One woman says one threat. And he ran for his life. Gets to the edge of the property of, of Israel, or to Judah. He gets to the edge of the land, and he leaves his servants and goes into the wilderness even farther and says, God, I don't even want to live anymore. What? Great spiritual victory. Take my life. Doesn't make any sense, but he was disappointed. You know why? Because he thought, man, this is it. This is the moment. Everything's going to be great now. Jezebel's threat. God, where'd you go? God, this isn't what I thought would happen. God, this isn't fair. This isn't right. God, I did this for you. You should be taking care of this. But you notice how he didn't even give God a chance to take care of it? It's just like Abraham. He got to Egypt. Hey, lie about this so that we'll be covered. He didn't even give God a chance to step in and do something about it. Do you know what the Bible says? As Elijah's out in the wilderness, that God sent angels to minister to him, to provide food for him. He said, you just take your rest. Let him rest and minister to him and comforted him. And that is what I want you to understand. When we go through times of disappointment, God is not mad at you when you say, God, I'm discouraged, disappointed. He comes and says, no, I want to sit with you. I'm going to minister to you. I'm going to give you my grace and my mercy. I'm going to put people in your life to encourage you. But that doesn't last forever, by the way. See, there's a fine line between God, I'm disappointed and discouraged, and God, I'm a victim who's always going to be this way. See, even Elijah was told by God at a certain point, okay, Elijah, it's time to get up and go back. I've ministered to you, I've comforted you, but now you've got to go back because I've got work for you to do. And isn't that amazing how God will equally comfort and provide grace and mercy, but then also not leave us out in the wilderness as a victim, but say, no, 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 watch me strengthen you and restore you and now put you back to work for my glory. You see, God's people were discouraged, and it's totally fine to admit that I'm discouraged. It's okay to admit that I have fear, but we can't live there. Hear me now. You can't live in disappointment. You can't live in a defeated state. You need to acknowledge this is where I am, but God, I'm trusting in you that you'll be greater than my circumstances. You'll be greater than my understanding, and you'll show me that perfect love cast out all fear. So what can exasperate disappointment in our lives? Half-hearted obedience fear, and forgetfulness. Forgetfulness. Look at verse 22 of Exodus chapter 5. Verse 22. And Moses returned unto the Lord. Now notice this. When was the last time we can tell that Moses spoke to God? He hasn't spoken to God since the Pharaoh encounter, right? So all this is going on, and now Moses goes to God. Isn't this like us? Man, we sh he should have went to God. The minute Pharaoh said, I'm not letting your people go, Moses should have said, time out. I need some prayer time. I got to go talk to my God and find out what I'm supposed to do next. Man, wouldn't it be amazing if in a conflict, you literally said, time out. Like you're talking to someone and their voice starts raising and you see it's getting heated and you go, whoop, time out. We can't go here. I got to pray. I guarantee you, they're going to think a couple things. 
you're nuts. They don't want to argue with you because you're nuts, okay? They don't, you might just snap and freak out and kill everybody. They don't know. Or they're going to think, man, what, why does it mean that much to this person to pray before he says a word? And what does James say? Let every man be what? Swift to hear, but slow to what? Slow to speak and slow to wrath. How is it that I can be slow to speak and slow to wrath? By the power of prayer. That's why Paul says pray without ceasing. It means I'm praying all the time. Now I'm not always going like, ho he hum, praying, okay? Floating around like a monk. No. If you want to do that, try it. It's fine, whatever. Again, nuts. Okay, that's going to be the first assumption. It means I'm always in an attitude of prayer. I'm always thinking, God, let my words honor you. Let my thoughts honor you. Let my actions honor you. God, what would you do in this situation? Stop reacting and start acting on situations. And we're so good at reacting. Yeah, but they said, who cares? Isn't it amazing how whenever things come up like this, we instantly become third graders? You ever notice this? You argued with them. Well, yeah, but they started it. Well, yeah, but they said this. Oh, they said this. They did this. They pushed me. So I punched them in the face. Like, how, that only works in third grade. Like, it doesn't work anywhere else in society except for a, a junior high or an elementary playground. No, I'm fine. I, I could punch them in the face because they said this. Like, how is that? It doesn't make any sense. When you understand this idea that when we think about conflict, we need to be going to God in prayer in the moments of life. Not when everything's exploded, everything's blown up, I've said all these things, all these things have happened, and then I go to God and go, okay, how are you going to fix it? God, take care of it. Look what I did. I made a pretty big mess here. You got to clean up on life here, okay? So Moses goes to the Lord and he spends some time with them. But look what he says, verse 22. Moses returned unto the Lord and said, Lord, wherefore hast thou so evil entreated this people? So evil entreated this people. Why is it that thou hast sent me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in thy name, you notice that? I only came to Pharaoh because you told me to. By the way, this doesn't work either, right? Blaming God when we're disobedient, not a good play, okay? If I came to Pharaoh to speak in thy name, he hath done evil to this people, neither hast thou delivered thy people at all. You said you were going to deliver your people, and you ain't done nothing. Wow. This is where, again, we take God and we put him on our timetable, God, I'll, I'll be obedient. God, I'll serve you, but you better do it my way, in my time, as I see fit. We see this, again, in Moses' life, this idea of forgetfulness. When he speaks to God, he asks God. Another translation says it this way. Then Moses went back to the Lord and protested. Why have you brought all this trouble on your own people, Lord? Why did you send me? Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but we've prayed prayers like that. And it's Okay. It's okay to be honest before God, but we also better be honest about why we're praying prayers like this. You can tell God, God, why'd you even do this? God, why, where are you in this? But you better be ready for God to remind us by the gracious initiative of his Holy Spirit and the power of his word that he is in control and that we are the ones that are forgetting. Interestingly enough, Moses forgets why God sent him and blames God for the way Pharaoh is acting. Wasn't it Moses who was half-hearted and not fully honest with Pharaoh? Not God. I came to speak in your name. God could have said, yeah, but you didn't tell him what I told you to tell him. We do the same thing. We forget what God actually said. We forget how God has blessed us in the past. We forget the cross. And then we blame God for the situation. 
However, God told Moses like four times that Pharaoh would not listen to him and that God would lead them out. Get this now. Moses goes before God. Pharaoh's not listening and you haven't delivered your people. And God's going, I told you he wouldn't listen and I'm going to deliver them. But we forget. We get so wrapped up in our expectations and what we think is going to happen. We forget what God actually said. God promised it wouldn't go the way that Moses thought, but that he would be there to lead them out. That his presence would be with him. And yet Moses forgot and only focused on the circumstances. Moses forgot and only focused on the circumstances. I'm going to ask you this morning, if you're battling disappointment and discouragement, how are you handling it? Are you exasperating it? Or are you taking it to God? Are you using it as a way to do some self-examination, some self-evaluation? God, what did you really call me to do? God, what did you really say? How can, I, how can I honor you in this? Next week, we're going to get into, we just don't have time this morning. Next week, I get into, how do I withstand the waves of disappointment? I can tell you right now, God wants to redeem your disappointment. God wants to use your discouragement, your disappointment to honor him, to praise him, and to bless you. And I'm telling you right now, it's not even about you first and foremost. Do you know why we really get so upset with God when we have disappointment? Because we ultimately believe the lie that this life is about us. I'll give you a short example, and then we're going to close in prayer. And I know whenever I say a short something, you're always like, sure. 1220, we'll be praying. I got you. I said that this morning to somebody. I said, yeah, I told so-and-so I can go a little shorter so they have more time. And two people laughed. Laughed. Shorter? You go, what? Okay. Let me get to the point. So this is why we go over. Okay, so I was standing in a store just the other day. And I was in the book aisle, and uh, we were buying Anthony a book or whatnot for his birthday and whatnot. And uh, I have a 12-year-old now, so pray for me that he makes it to 13. Okay, that's what we're praying for. Um, any parents of teenagers sigh and laugh at the same moment. It's really crazy. They're like, oh, yeah, I know what you mean. So we're in this book aisle, and I'm, I'm, we're looking at it. And I always find it interesting to look at the Christian books in, like, a secular store. So a non-Christian store, but look at the books that are considered Christian, or, I'm sorry, inspirational, okay? No sarcasm there at all. So I'm looking at the books. And there's a certain author that wrote, has written many books, and I pick up one of the books. That's, I haven't seen it on the shelf before. And the title of the book was... Um, uh, working all things to your good or something like this. And I, I remember I picked it up and I looked at Sandra and I just kind of chuckled. I said, oh, this is going to be good. This is going to be very theologically sound, I'm sure. So I start flipping through the first couple pages of the first chapter. And it's amazing. I read the first section. And anyone that went to college and took tests, you know the trick when you have to study a chapter, right? You read the first sentence, the last sentence, right? And you get pretty much the gist. Laura's laughing because she's been there, okay? You get the gist of what it is. So now you can answer the question. You don't have to read the whole chapter, by the way. First sentence, last sentence, first, and you get through a whole book in like no time. So anyway, I, I saw that online. You can do that. So I was reading through there and I read a couple lines. I was like, oh, that's actually pretty good. Oh, that, that's actually pretty good. And I'm wondering, where's it going to go sideways? And sure enough, by like the third little section, you know, there's like little headings, it finally got to it. The Bible says in Romans chapter 8 
that God works all things together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purposes. And we really think sometimes, what's that good? Oh God, what's the good? Is it going to be a promotion? Is it going to be a raise? Is it going to be these surface, shallow, worldly things that we always hope it is? When we don't realize, the verse itself tells us right before that what the good is. To make you into the image of Christ. To make you like Christ. That's the good that God is always working through all the things in our life. Remember, it's not the things that make us like Christ. It's the God in the things that makes us like Christ. That's the good. We don't have to sit and go, hmm, what's the good that's going to come of this? What's the good that's going to come of me losing my job? Because we all know when God shuts a door, he opens a window. You know the truth about God? Let's just be real for a moment. God will shut the door and lock the window and say for the next 40 days, you're going to stay in the room by yourself, just you and me, and see how content you are. Why do we, why do we tell ourselves these trite little things? Oh, but God will. That's, you're just hoping to pander surface, circumstantial hope. Give them hope in Christ. Man, listen, whether you lose your job or get a promotion, God is God. You are in Christ. What are you worried about? Trust in Christ. And so I'm reading through here, and that's why I knew. As soon as I saw the title, I was like, I know what this is going to be. It's going to be, God is always working in these things, and God is always going to do good, and this is what the good looks like. And by the third or fourth page, there it was. You'll get that promotion. You'll get that this. You'll get that woman or man that you long for. God is going to use this to make you wealthy. It's a whole section on it now. Completely taking one little verse of scripture and it sounds so scriptural. And I'm not kidding. This was, there was like six copies on the shelf. Just book after book by this author. And I remember thinking, God, this isn't even close to your word. Well, people will go, well, he's a pastor of a church. It must be biblical. It sounds good. Man, it sure makes me feel good. And it's fake. Here's the thing. It might make you feel good for a season. But do you know how many people buy that book, read that book, and go, oh, God said I'll get the job. God said I'll get that man or woman that I've always wanted to date. Okay, God may or may not bring that person into your life. Be content in Christ apart from any relationship you have. Let me just tell you something right now. For those of you that are younger or even older that are considering marriage or looking into that, if you for a second think this person will somehow fulfill something in you that you don't have right now, you will not be fulfilled. Christ has to be our all in all. Anything else is just bonus. Now, I say that to say this. I could not imagine my life without Sandra. She is a blessing and, and just a, such a helpmate to me. And some people say, helpmate, that sounds awful derogatory. Do you know that David called God his helpmate in the Psalms? All it means is I don't believe I, God is going to allow me to see some things without her help and assistance in this time of my life because he's allowed us to come together. But I can tell you right now that she's not my everything. She's not all in all. There is only one. It is Christ. And here's the cool thing. Men, marry a woman who is okay with that. Women, marry a man who's okay with that. If you marry someone who expects you to be their all in all, don't, don't expect anything but disappointment. But man, when you go into it knowing, no, Christ is our everything, and then everything else is just bonus. Man, the things that God will reveal and the things that will, God will do in that relationship. And when we think about these things about disappointment, we get so off base so fast by giving fake hope. 
God is working all things to good, and you don't have to wonder what the good is because it's deeper than any worldly lust or circumstance or situation or paycheck or person. It is deeper because it is rooted in the person of Christ. And the good that he's working is through this circumstance, you will be more like Jesus Christ so that you will glorify him. Because ultimately this life that's not about us, it's about him. It's about making him known. What does Paul say? And Paul says, I'm in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ. I want to be with Jesus, but I know he's left me here for, for helping the church and blessing the church and being here for the church. And what did he do for the church that helped them? He pointed them to Jesus Christ. So I want to encourage this morning, if you're discouraged, disappointed, feeling wore out, wore down, understand this. God is in your situation. God is very much aware. Why did the children of God get so excited? Because he heard their cry. He understood their affliction. God knows your affliction. God knows what you're going through. He has not turned a blind eye to it. He is there for you, and he will minister to you. But I'm telling you right now, if you have been in that season for a time, maybe God will graciously and lovingly say, watch me get you up off your behind, (laughs) put you back on your feet, and give you the strength to move forward. Let's watch God not only work in redeeming us, but let's watch God work in restoring us to where he'd have us to be. If you want to talk any more about this, if you are battling with disappointment and discouragement, please come see me. I would love to have a private conversation with you. If I can pray for you in any way, I would love to do that. But maybe this morning you would come and bend a knee and say, God, you know what I'm going through. I know you hear it, but I don't feel like you're really close right now. Help me to trust in you when I don't see you. When I don't see the evident hand at work, help me to trust in your heart. Would you come in just a moment when we have an invitation, bend a knee. God, I know you're in this. Help me to know you're in this. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace, your love, your mercy. We thank you, God, that when we go through things, that you are with us, that you hear our cries. And Lord, we are hopeful and we know that there is a great, a great rescue coming at some point in our lives when we either leave this world or you call us home. But Lord, I pray that in the meantime, that in the meantime, while we're here on this earth, when we battle disappointment, discouragement, frustrations, failed expectations, that we would know that you hear our cry, you know what we're going through, You will minister to us. You will give us your grace. You will strengthen us. But I pray also that we would know that you will give us the strength to move on, to keep moving forward, to not live in defeat and discouragement, to, yes, Lord, acknowledge it and admit it and be okay with that, but also know and trust that you will give us the strength to move forward for your glory. Help us to know that our real hope comes from you and is found in you and you alone. Lord, thank you for this example in the life of your children and the life of Moses. And I pray that we would look at this as an example of just how humans can be. We're not here to judge Moses or these children of Israel, Lord, because we would do the same thing. So I pray that we would understand that, that we are just like them. So often we hear Bible stories and Bible characters and we think I could never be them or they would never be like me. And Lord, in reality, they're just like us. And so Lord, I pray that we would identify with them Believe that you are with us even in the times of disappointment and help us to make wise choices that would not exasperate disappointment, but that would allow us to trust in the true hope that will get us through. We love you, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet this morning? If you'd like to come and pray, please come and do so. 
going through a time of disappointment and discouragement, you want to come and pray, some have already moved. Just go ahead and move. Don't worry about anyone else. You just move. There are those in the front that would love to pray with you as we spend time with him this morning.